0: Section 32 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Kanan. Youth 3, Part 1. 3. Ada after the wet summer the autumn was radiant in the orchards the trees were weighed down with fruit the red apples shone like billiard balls already some of the trees were taking on their brilliant garb of the falling year flame color fruit color color of ripe melon of oranges and lemons of good cooking and fried dishes misty lights glowed through the woods and from the meadows there rose the little pink flames of the saffron He was going down a hill. It was a Sunday afternoon. He was striding, almost running, gaining speed down the slope. He was singing a phrase, the rhythm of which had been obsessing him all through his walk. He was red, disheveled. He was walking, swinging his arms, and rolling his eyes like a madman, when, as he turned a bend in the road, he came suddenly on a fair girl, perched on a wall, tugging with all her might at a branch of a tree, from which she was greedily plucking and eating purple plums. Their astonishment was mutual. She looked at him, stared with her mouth full. Then she burst out laughing. So did he. She was good to see, with her round face framed in fair curly hair, which was like a sunlit cloud about her, her full pink cheeks, her wide blue eyes, her rather large nose, impertinently turned up her little red mouth showing white teeth, the canine little, strong, and projecting, her plump chin, and her full figure, large and plump, well built, solidly put together. He called out, Good eating! and was for going on his road. But she called to him, Sir, sir, will you be very nice? Help me to get down. I can't. He returned and asked her how she had climbed up, with my hands and feet. It is easy enough to get up, especially when there are tempting plums hanging above your head. Yes, but when you have eaten your courage goes. You can't find the way to get down.' He looked at her on her perch. He said, "'You are all right there. Stay there quietly. I'll come and see you tomorrow. Good night.' But he did not budge and stood beneath her. She pretended to be afraid and begged him with little glances not to leave her. They stayed looking at each other and laughing. She showed him the branch to which she was clinging and asked, Would you like some? Respect for property had not developed in Christophe since the days of his expeditions with Otto. He accepted without hesitation. She amused herself with pelting him with plums. When he had eaten she said, Now! He took a wicked pleasure in keeping her waiting. She grew impatient on her wall. At last he said, "'Come, then,' and held his hand up to her. But just as she was about to jump down, she thought a moment. "'Wait! We must make provision first.' She gathered the finest plums within reach and filled the front of her blouse with them. "'Carefully! Don't crush them!' He felt almost inclined to do so. She lowered herself from the wall and jumped into his arms. Although he was sturdy, he bent under her weight and all but dragged her down. They were of the same height. Their faces came together. He kissed her lips, moist and sweet, with the juice of the plums, and she returned his kiss without more ceremony. "'Where are you going?' he asked. "'I don't know. Are you out alone?' "'No. I am with friends, but I have lost them.' "'Hi! Hi!' she called suddenly, as loudly as she could. No answer. She did not bother about it any more. They began to walk, at random, following their noses. "'And you? Where are you going?' said she. "'I don't know either.' "'Good. We'll go together.' She took some plums from her gaping blouse and began to munch them. "'You'll make yourself sick,' he said. "'Not I.' I'VE BEEN EATING THEM ALL DAY. THROUGH THE GAP IN HER BLOUSE, HE SAW THE WHITE OF HER CHEMISE. THEY ARE ALL WARM NOW, SHE SAID. LET ME SEE. SHE HELD HIM ONE AND LAUGHED. HE ATE IT. SHE WATCHED HIM OUT OF THE CORNER OF HER EYE, AS SHE SUCKED AT THE FRUIT LIKE A CHILD. HE DID NOT KNOW HOW THE ADVENTURE WOULD END. IT IS PROBABLE THAT SHE AT LEAST HAD SOME SUSPICION. SHE WAITED. HI, HI, VOICES IN THE WOODS hi hi she answered ah there they are she said to christophe not a bad thing either but on the contrary she was thinking that it was rather a pity but speech was not given to woman for her to say what she is thinking thank god for there would be an end of morality on earth the voices came near her friends were near the road she leaped the ditch climbed the hedge and hid behind the trees He watched her in amazement. She signed to him imperiously to come to her. He followed her. She plunged into the depths of the wood. "'Hi, hi,' she called once more when they had gone some distance. "'You see, they must look for me,' she explained to Christophe. Her friends had stopped on the road and were listening for her voice to mark where it came from. They answered her and in their turn entered the woods, but she did not wait for them she turned about on right and on left. They bawled loudly after her. She let them, and then went and called in the opposite direction. At last they wearied of it, and making sure that the best way of making her come was to give up seeking her, they called, "'Good-bye!' and went off singing. She was furious that they should not have bothered about her any more than that. She had tried to be rid of them, but she had not counted on their going off so easily." Christophe looked rather foolish. This game of hide-and-seek with a girl whom he did not know did not exactly enthrall him, and he had no thought of taking advantage of their solitude. Nor did she think of it. In her annoyance, she forgot Christophe. "'Oh, it's too much,' she said, thumping her hands together. "'They have left me.' "'But,' said Christophe, "'you wanted them to.' "'Not at all.' "'You ran away.' If I ran away from them, that is my affair, not theirs. They ought to look for me. What if I were lost? Already she was beginning to be sorry for herself because of what might have happened if— if the opposite of what actually had occurred had come about. Oh, she said. I'll shake them. She turned back and strode off. As she went, she remembered Christoph and looked at him once more. But it was too late. She began to laugh the little demon which had been in her the moment before was gone while she was waiting for another to come she saw christophe with the eyes of indifference and then she was hungry her stomach was reminding her that it was supper time she was in a hurry to rejoin her friends at the inn she took christophe's arm leaned on it with all her weight groaned and said that she was exhausted that did not keep her from dragging Christoph down a slope, running and shouting and laughing like a mad thing. They talked. She learned who he was. She did not know his name and seemed not to be greatly impressed by his title of musician. He learned that she was a shop girl from a dressmaker's in the Kaiserstrasse, the most fashionable street in the town. Her name was Adelheid, to friends Ada. Her companions on the excursion were one of her friends, who worked at the same place as herself, and two nice young men, a clerk at Weiler's Bank and a clerk from a big linen-draper's. They were turning their Sunday to account. They had decided to dine at the Brochet Inn, from which there is a fine view over the Rhine, and then to return by boat. The others had already established themselves at the inn when they arrived. Ada made a scene with her friends. She complained of their cowardly desertion and presented Christophe as her saviour. They did not listen to her complaints, but they knew Christophe, the bank clerk by reputation, the clerk from having heard some of his compositions. He thought it a good idea to hum an air from one of them immediately afterwards, and the respect which they showed him made an impression on Ada, the more so as Mira, the other young woman, her real name was Hansi or Johanna, a brunette with blinking eyes, bumpy forehead, hair screwed back, Chinese face, a little too animated, but clever and not without charm, in spite of her goat-like head and her oily, golden-yellow complexion, at once began to make advances to their Hofmusikus. They begged him to be so good as to honor their repast with his presence. Never had he been in such high feather, for he was overwhelmed with attentions, and the two women, like good friends as they were, tried each to rob the other of him. Both courted him, Mira with ceremonious manners, sly looks as she rubbed her leg against his under the table, Ada openly making play with her fine eyes, her pretty mouth, and all the seductive resources at her command. Such coquetry, in its almost coarseness, incommoded and distressed Christophe. These two bold young women were a change from the unkindly faces he was accustomed to at home. Mira interested him. He guessed her to be more intelligent than Ada. But her obsequious manners and her ambiguous smile were curiously attractive and repulsive to him at the same time. She could do nothing against Ada's radiance of life and pleasure, and she was aware of it. When she saw that she had lost the bout, she abandoned the effort, turned in upon herself, went on smiling and patiently waited for her day to come ada seeing herself mistress of the field did not seek to push forward the advantage she had gained what she had done had been mainly to despite her friend she had succeeded she was satisfied but she had been caught in her own game she felt as she looked into christophe's eyes the passion that she had kindled in him and that same passion began to awake in her she was silent She left her vulgar teasing. They looked at each other in silence. On their lips they had the savor of their kiss. From time to time, by fits and starts, they joined vociferously in the jokes of the others. Then they relapsed into silence, stealing glances at each other. At last they did not even look at each other, as though they were afraid of betraying themselves. Absorbed in themselves, they brooded over their desire. When the meal was over— they got ready to go. They had to go a mile and a half through the woods to reach the pier. Ada got up first. Christophe followed her. They waited on the steps until the others were ready, without speaking, side by side, in the thick mist that was hardly at all lit up by the single lamp hanging by the inn door. Mira was dawdling by the mirror. Ada took Christophe's hand and led him along the house towards the garden into the darkness under a balcony from which hung a curtain of vines they hid all about them was dense darkness they could not even see each other the wind stirred the tops of the pines he felt ada's warm fingers entwined in his and the sweet scent of a heliotrope flower that she had at her breast suddenly she dragged him to her christophe's lips found ada's hair wet with the mist and kissed her eyes her eyebrows, her nose, her cheeks, the corners of her mouth, seeking her lips, and finding them, staying pressed to them. The others had gone. They called. Ada! They did not stir. They hardly breathed, pressed close to each other, lips and bodies. They heard Mira. They have gone on. The footsteps of their companions died away in the night. They held each other closer in silence, Stifling on their lips a passionate murmuring In the distance a village clock rang out They broke apart They had to run to the pier Without a word they set out Arms and hands entwined Keeping step A little quick firm step like hers The road was deserted No creature was abroad They could not see ten yards ahead of them They went serene and sure Into the beloved night They never stumbled over the pebbles on the road As they were late They took a short cut. The path led for some way down through vines, and then began to ascend and wind up the side of the hill. Through the mist they could hear the roar of the river and the heavy paddles of the steamer approaching. They left the road and ran across the fields. At last they found themselves on the bank of the Rhine, but still far from the pier. Their serenity was not disturbed. Ada had forgotten her fatigue of the evening. It seemed to them that they could have walked all night like that on the silent grass, in the hovering mists that grew wetter and more dense along the river that was wrapped in a whiteness as of the moon. The steamer's siren hooted. The invisible monster plunged heavily away and away. They said, laughing, We will take the next. By the edge of the river soft lapping waves broke at their feet. At the landing stage they were told, The last boat has just gone. Christoph's heart thumped, Ada's hand, rasped his arm more tightly but, she said there will be another one tomorrow a few yards away in a halo of mist was the flickering light of a lamp hung on a post on a terrace by the river a little farther on were a few lighted windows a little in they went into the tiny garden the sand ground under their feet they groped their way to the steps when they entered the lights were being put out Ada, on Christophe's arm, asked for a room. The room to which they were led opened on to the little garden. Christophe leaned out of the window and saw the phosphorescent flow of the river and the shade of the lamp on the glass of which were crushed mosquitoes with large wings. The door was closed. Ada was standing by the bed and smiling. He dared not look at her. She did not look at him, but through her lashes she followed Christophe's every movement The floor creaked with every step. They could hear the least noise in the house. They sat on the bed and embraced in silence. The flickering light of the garden is dead. All is dead. Night. The abyss. Neither light nor consciousness. Being. The obscure, devouring forces of being. Joy all-powerful. Joy rending. Joy which sucks down the human creature as the void a stone the sprout of desire sucking up thought, the absurd, delicious law of the blind, intoxicated worlds which roll at night, a night which is many nights, hours that are centuries, records which are death, dreams shared, words spoken with eyes closed, tears and laughter, the happiness of loving in the voice, of sharing the nothingness of sleep. The swiftly passing images floating in the brain, the hallucinations of the roaring night. The Rhine laps in a little creek by the house. In the distance, his waters over the dams and breakwaters make a sound as of a gentle rain falling on sand. The hull of the boat cracks and groans under the weight of water. The chain by which it is tied sags and grows taut with a rusty clattering. THE VOICE OF THE RIVER RISES, IT FILLS THE ROOM, THE BED IS LIKE A BOAT, THEY ARE SWEPT ALONG SIDE BY SIDE BY A GIDDY CURRENT, HUNG IN MID-AIR LIKE A soaring BIRD, THE NIGHT GROWS EVER MORE DARK, THE VOID MORE EMPTY, ADA WEEPS, Christophe LOSES CONSCIOUSNESS, BOTH ARE SWEPT DOWN UNDER THE FLOWING WATERS OF THE NIGHT, NIGHT, DEATH, WHY WAKE TO LIFE AGAIN? The light of the dawning day peeps through the dripping panes. The spark of life glows once more in their languorous bodies. He awakes. Ada's eyes are looking at him. A whole life passes in a few moments. Days of sin, greatness, and peace. Where am I? And am I too? Do I still exist? I am no longer conscious of being. All about me is the Infinite. I HAVE THE SOUL OF A STATUE WITH LARGE TRANQUIL EYES FILLED WITH OLYMPIAN PEACE. THEY FALL BACK INTO THE WORLD OF SLEEP, AND THE FAMILIAR SOUNDS OF THE DAWN, THE DISTANT BELLS A PASSING BOAT, OARS DRIPPING WATER, FOOTSTEPS ON THE ROAD, ALL caress WITHOUT DISTURBING THEIR HAPPY SLEEP, REMINDING THEM THAT THEY ARE ALIVE. And making them delight in the savour of their happiness. End of section thirty two.